Welcome fellow horror hounds and welcome to the latest episode of Talk and Stalk, your unholy home for horror. I'm your host as always, Barry, and I'm joined today by my fellow friend and film buff, my corrupted co-host, the diabolical Darren. Hi, I'm always happy to be uh, really looking forward to talking about Don't Look Now. And uh, spoiler alert, he's just told us what film we're going to be talking about today. (laughs) And that is 1973's Don't Look Now, directed by Nicholas Rogue, very much, I think, one of the greatest psychological horror films of all time, starring Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie. And what was your introduction to this film, Darren? How old do you think you were when you first saw this? Right, so this was like a, like on uh, UK TV, going back from when I was about 8, 9, 10, this was regularly shown, and I'm talking, this was shown two, three times a year. So being being young and that, you know, I, I sort of would flick through the channels, see it on there, and not, you know, pretty much try and skip it. But then one day I thought, it must have been about 15, 16, I thought I'll give this a go, like, and then I just fell in love with it ever since, you know? Yeah. Um, this is a film that... Um, I'll admit, my mother never used to let me watch horror films as a child, yet my grandmother would. And I used to watch a lot of horror films at my grandmother. I really hold my grandmother responsible for me being in love with horror movies. I think she's got a lot to answer for, to to be quite honest. And I always remember there there being a specific scene in a film. Now, we're going to talk about this scene later that absolutely terrified me as a young child. I actually had nightmares for Obviously a couple of Obviously, you're talking nights. about the end. Yes. Uh, there was yeah. a particular scene. Now, as a young child, I had no idea what this film was, actually. And it is literally the only scene I remember from the entire movie. Now, as I got older, you know, I become more and more a horror fan. And I was about at the age of 14, 15 years old. I actually finally realised what movie that scene was from don't look now and it's a film that yes i bought almost immediately on dvd and it's a film that i have fallen in love with it is a film that certainly has received a lot of appreciation and recognition over the years it's very much considered to be a classic now yeah i think on initial you know response to it was quite lukewarm it was thought of as being okay yeah. And the director says, funny enough, in his commentary track that in recent years, I think he's passed away now, but uh, yeah. in recent years, it's got a lot of, you know, appraisal and, yeah. uh, you know, maybe even a new generation of audience is starting to, to see it now and appreciate for what it, for what it is. Yeah, um, it was actually, yeah, directed by British director Nicholas Rogue. It was actually his third film. Uh, his first movie was Performance. Then he directed Walkabout the following year. And uh, this is regarded by many to be to be his best film. He actually did direct um, a movie that I love, that I actually think is one of the uh, the best Roald Dahl adaptations. He directed 1990s The Witches, starring um, Angelica Huston. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, he actually directed that. But yeah, he did actually pass away back in 2018, I believe it was. Um, so yeah, he uh, started off his career as a cinematographer and editor. He'd uh, worked on the likes of the Mask with the Red, uh, the Mask of the Red Death, um, before yeah becoming a film director. 
And uh, don't look now. Uh, you know, the, the story, Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland, they're a married couple. They travel to Venice, don't they, following the recent um, accidental death of their daughter. Uh, it's basically his job to restore a church. And they encounter yeah, and two I... sisters, don't they? One of which is a clairvoyant. Yeah. Um, uh, who... What I was going to say was, yeah, it's adapted from a Daphne du Maurier short it story. It is, and it's, I believe it's the eighth, the eighth adaptation of a Daphne du Maurier story. Uh, the Birds do... being one. Yeah, I was going to say, and, and there was another Hitchcock one she'd done as well, Rebecca. Uh, Rebecca, I believe, and also Jamaica Inn um, was well, also I... based on a, a Daphne du Maurier um, and story. that was another Hitchcock film then? It was, yeah. Oh, right, I've, not, I've never seen that. I've never heard of that one. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, this was actually the eighth adaptation. Um, and of course, you know, The Birds, one of Hitchcock's classics, 1963, a whole ten years before before this came out. Um, so basically, yeah, they go to Venice and, of course, they meet two sisters, one of which is a clairvoyant and informs them that their daughter is trying to contact them and warn them of danger. At its core... This film is more than just a horror movie. This is a film that's really about grief. This is a film about loss, grief, and preordained fate. Yeah, absolutely. That's what the director says in the commentary track. It's um, Obviously, we start off the film with the tragedy of a little girl. Yeah. Um, you've got her parents in the house, you know, the ones working on his slides and the other, you know, her mother's reading and that. You've got two kids playing out the back. Um, and then the father gets some sense of, like, premonition that something's gone wrong. Yeah. And he rushes out, but he manages to just be too late to save his little girl. It's a really harrowing, harrowing yeah. scene. And it's played, you know, to perfection by Donald Sutherland. Yeah, um, um, I think this is you, one of Donald Sutherland's uh, best film roles. As you say, the opening to this film really is quite harrowing. It, it's quite a striking image. You know, this film has a lot of striking imagery, in fact. You know, their young blonde-haired daughter wearing a red shiny Mac. And, of course, yeah, she drowns. She drowns. And, as you said, Donald Sutherland um, has this kind of realisation that something's not quite right. And he runs out there. And obviously there's a moment later on in the film with his wife actually talking to to the two ladies that they meet. And she actually says it's almost as if he knew. He knew something was wrong. Yeah. He, de he definitely has psychic ability, but he's really not, you know, coming, bringing it on board with him. He's basically a sceptic, even in his own, you know, psychic abilities. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, we'll come on to things later, but it will result in in badly for him. Yeah, there's a lot of obviously pieces in this movie that really kind of connect together. And, uh, you know, as you said, with with the opening um, to this film, um, with with the death of their daughter, um, it really, you know, sets the movie in motion. This is really about a couple who have probably lost their way somewhat in their relationship, in their marriage due to the death of their daughter. Now, there's a lot, as I said, there's a lot of actually kind of motives in this film. Now, there was actually, I know in the original story, Christine, their daughter, actually died of meningitis. They were actually in Venice already. That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah Nicholas Rowe didn't want that. And there's a kind of a running motive of, of water, which is why they have, the death is different in the movie. She actually drowns, and of course, they go to Venice. 
a city also, which is surrounded by water. Yeah. Also in the book, there's he, there's not so much emphasis on his on John's psychic ability. No. So, um, but as as with Venice, it's just a great backdrop with the, with the the water, and you've got the alleyways, you've got the you know darkly lit alleyways. And then in contrast to that, you've got the really bright sunshine of the film. Yeah. As ben- well. Yeah, Venice makes for... Uh, the setting to this film is just fantastic. Nicholas Rogue makes the most of the location in this film. Um, you know, it's almost like Venice is actually a character in itself. Um, as oh, you said, the kind of yeah. very labyrinth-esque... Um, alleyways, uh, the old kind of ruined buildings. There's a very kind of dark, subtle beauty to it. And uh, yeah, the the now you know, getting back quickly to to the opening scene of this film as well. Um, there are actually some uh, some common things that actually happen in this film that are actually quite easy to miss upon a first viewing. Certainly, um, there's actually kind of an emphasis on falling in this movie. Um, it's something that's quite ever-present. Now, Christine falls into the lake. Laura takes a fall after her fall in the restaurant. Uh, The son Johnny is injured in a fall at the boarding school. They actually get a telephone call saying that he's had a nasty fall. Um, Even the bishop, who's overseeing the church restoration, informs John, Sutherland's character, that his father was killed in a fall. And even John himself is nearly killed in a fall during renovating. So this is like my second favorite film, and do you know what? I've never really picked up on ever picked up on that. Mm, so yeah. that's really interesting. It is, and also uh, glass is frequently used as an omen that something bad is about to occur. Just before Christine drowns, John actually knocks a glass of water over, and I think Johnny actually breaks a pane of glass on his bike, doesn't he? Rides over a pane yeah. of glass. Yeah, that's um, right. Laura, when she faints in the restaurant, I'm pretty certain she actually knocks glassware off the table. Yes, she um, does. Yeah. And John nearly, when he nearly falls to his death, um, a plank of wood actually shatters a pane of glass as well. Yes, again, that's you know, it's certainly no coincidence. No, he certainly had that in mind, you know, to be doing to de- putting all these things into the film. Yeah. But funny enough, going back to that first scene was the part with the slide where, oh, where yes. we yeah. we see this small figure, you know, in red. Yeah, and we don't at uh, that stage we don't know what you know what it's going to be or the outcome of it. Yeah, it's uh, I believe it's paint, isn't it? Isn't it paint? That's uh... I think it's, it's it's paint or I don't think it's a drink. Is it? It might have been a drink. Was it red wine or it's something something like that? Yeah, um, we get this kind of nondescript, you know, kind of image on this paint, and then of course you know after the death of Christine, of course. Um, it kind of trickles across the entire photograph. Now, this is very much symbolic. This is very much, you know, uh, spoiler alert, I'm assuming anyone listening to this has seen the film anyway. But of course, this all kind of adds up. This is this is John without realising, or should I say fully adhering to what he has. He's actually seeing his future here. Exactly, and the, there's clues throughout the film again, like as as in most, because I will, you know, we'll, we'll come on to this, but I do regard this as a giallo, really. But um, as in Argento, De Palma, you you get clues throughout the film. 
mm. and it's very clever in the way it does it as well. It's yeah, you it, know, go the, on. There's well, there's yeah, there's certainly more to the film than the first appears. It's one of them films. I know it's a film that's very often analysed. You know, Nicholas Rogue has been heavily, heavily praised for. Um, you know his artistic template, if you will, in this in this movie. Um, as you said, there's a lot of clues kind of peppered throughout. Um, you know, but yeah, at its core, you know, th- this is a film that really, I mean, it's about grief. It really is um, a a perfectly believable relationship between Julie Christie and Donald Sutherland in this film. They really do um, carry this movie. And as, I think as the well chemistry. as the atmosphere as well. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I think the chemistry between the two of them is absolutely electric. It's you. It was like a happy accident. I don't know. They just seemed to get on. I don't, you know, yeah, maybe they, offset and that. But you can tell there's some sort of chemistry between them. Well, this was actually the first time they'd ever actually met and uh, worked together in that in this, you know, in this film as well. But yeah, there's just a great sense of atmosphere in this movie. There's just a sense of dread that seems to permit this film from, from and start I was reading to finish. Up. I was reading up, and um, they said that before them two were going to come in for the roles, they were thinking about Robert Wagner and Natalie Wood. Yes. I don't know if you know that. Yeah, yeah. They that were... would have been strange. I don't think that would have worked half no. as good as what the original has. No, they almost couldn't take it. They almost couldn't take the roles, to, in, in fact, to, to other commitments. Um and, you know, it's impossible, let's face it, it's impossible to talk about this film without talking about the sex scene. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Which, it's very um, interesting. It has really become, this film has really become famous for two things. The ending and the sex scene, which actually caused a lot of controversy prior to its release. Um, this was described as being one of the frankest love scenes to ever be filmed. And um, it was kind of unusually graphic for the period. And uh, not to, you know, because we're not, this isn't a, uh, a porn a porn podcast or anything like this. But this film actually had a very rare depiction of, um, how do I word this? Cunnilingus in a mainstream yeah. film. Which was oh, yeah. very daring um... for its time. And, uh, I think with with the scene, I think you know it's it's shot so beautifully that I don't even think you know while watching it you even like think you know this is pornographic or anything like that no. because it's so stylishly done with the music the in the background yeah and then you've got the intercut in of them getting ready for yeah. dinner afterwards yeah so it's it's not done crudely or no, it's not done no. for titillation or anything like no, that no what what we're seeing here is we're seeing and you know there's a real level of authenticity to it what we're seeing is a real love what feels to be real and certainly looks to be real is a love making session between a married couple that who you know have lost their way maybe you know since obviously the death of their daughter and presumably this may be the first time they've actually had intercourse since the death of Christine. I think that's what the intention was in the film, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think there's even, you know, a slight suspicion that she may become pregnant through it as, as we go on into the film. Yeah. Um, it remained controversial for some years. And the BBC, when they actually aired this film, they cut it all together, which actually caused, I think, a flood of complaints 
from people. I um, think it's like widely renamed for people thinking them that they actually had sex, well, but it's been debunked since. Yeah, there there were rumours because, and again, it comes down to you know this film is masterfully made. You know this film is uh, really well filmed, and the intimacy of the scene. Yeah, it did. It led to a lot of rumours that they actually had sex. Um, and that apparently there were rumours going around. There were eight outtakes from the scene uh, doing the rounds in screening rooms and all that. But that's just a testament to Nicholas Rhodes' filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. There is a I, level I, I of think... authenticity. And from what I understand as well, it was the first scene that Donald Sutherland and Judy Christie actually filmed together. Nicholas Rhodes wanted to get that scene out of the way. And I think they did it on a closed set as well, didn't they? They did. And uh, they said it was a nightmare that Sutherland and Julie Christie, uh, there was no, there was no eroticness there. There was nothing pleasurable about it. It was very tough because they were doing this scene and Nicholas Rogue's like, you know, kiss her breasts, do this now. And it was a very awkward scene for both actors. Um, But you wouldn't think so looking back, you know, watching it back. No. It does look very natural. And it, it was a last minute thing. It would believe it or not, it was kind of a last-minute scene, in fact, as well, because Nicholas Rogue had actually said they they didn't want Nicholas Rogue did not want the movie to be them arguing from like scene to scene. He wanted there to be a scene that had some real emotional depth to it, and the love-making scene is what he came up with. Um, yeah, like you say, it was last minute. I think yeah, just to try and evolve the story a little bit more. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, the death, the death of their daughter in the opening, it really is, it really is quite harrowing. Um, and I believe that also caused, um, it was tough, it was tough to do um, because of the little girl. She'd actually been spending, I think, a lot of time um, in water, you know, preparing herself for the scene and that. But it was very hard, very tough. I think they used three girls for it. Three, I think they used one girl that shot, shot some wasn't part of the scene and never came back on the next day. Okay. He shot the, the blonde girl who's running around, you know, we see a lot, but she was scared of water apparently. So they had to have another standing to do the water scene, you know, actually in the water. Yeah. So yeah. Because yeah, I think she was the girls. original girl was actually hysterical, wasn't she? I think she was like, you know, despite the rehearsals, they were going well, but when it actually came down to filming it, um, I could imagine, you know, that was a real tough scene to, a, su- a tough scene to to do and to to, to yeah. film certainly due to the, the subject matter. Um, yeah, it's very difficult to, to watch that yeah. scene. Um, you know, but uh, so yeah, the, you know, it, it really sets the film up. And of course, let's just say that Pino Donaggio, this was the first film he ever scored, and it was purely by chance that they got him. Yeah, because he was teaching in uh, Venice at the time. Yeah, teaching music to students, I think, and then just. Purely by chance, he got to meet Nicholas Rogue, who said he was doing a film and what needed someone to score a film. Yeah. And then they got talking, they got on really well, and well, that was. There's a lot of happy accidents that, that happened throughout this film, mind. Yeah, he couldn't believe. And I think, could it? He, he couldn't he, believe he, because he'd had no interest in making soundtracks for films at the time, and he, he you know, that's he, right, yeah. yeah, he just thought that basically, why are they going to want a guy that's never actually scored a movie before? And the director, Nicholas Rowe, he actually said that there's so many things that happened in the making of this film through fate. Yeah. And it's so ironic that the film is about fate. It is about fate, yeah. 
So he, he just said it just all come together, you know, and it, yeah, he just really pleased that everything worked out the way it did. Yeah, they were really pleased with his work, and uh, they basically, uh, yeah, as well as composing the score, I think he actually performed a substantial portion of it as well. I mean, oh, the, it's haunting, isn't it? The it scores. is. Yeah, the it's piano. The, the, they accompany their moments where we actually see. Uh, you know, let's quickly get on about these moments now. Obviously, um, you know, Christine is wearing a red mac when she's when she drowns, and of yeah. course, you know, we hear you know during the course of the movie, uh, there's some murders happening in Venice. We see some bodies actually being fished out of the water, and there's actually a figure in a red coat that is actually seen during a few scenes that John sees. Um, yeah, the, linked to the murders, yeah. Yeah, well, we don't realise they're linked to the murders. We, he believes um, in his mind that, obviously, it's his daughter. Because, obviously, they're told, um, you know, the scene in which they meet the psychic, you know, the, uh, the two sisters, she actually tells the mother, doesn't she, that um, your daughter is happy. She's sitting there with you. Don't be sad. Um, she's really happy. Yeah. And, um, like, just going back to, like, the murders, you said, it's more of, like, an undercurrent of the film. It's not really... The movie doesn't um, focus on them, no. No, not not until the end, really. Yeah. But, um, yeah, like you say, with the psychics, so, you know, they're going, they're going out to dinner and they meet these two very strange old ladies, one yeah. of them being a, a blind psychic. Yeah. And I don't know about you, but the one, well, the... Not the blind one, the other one put the chills at me for some reason. She's really strange, <laughs> really creepy. Yeah, and there, when you when you're watching now when you're younger, there is a sense of unease with the scenes. Um, you know, uh, it, you know, it's kind of creepy in a way because yeah, she tells her that your daughter is still with you. She's happy. She's laughing, etc. And of course, uh, Julie Christie's character, uh, the mother, actually, you know, b- believes this. She has some faith, and whereas John is a complete disbeliever. He actually yeah, which... turns to his wife and he says, "Look, she's dead. You know, exactly. She, yeah, our daughter yeah. is dead, and, and it does ultimately it does lead to his death by non-believing. You know, yeah. And uh, so, yeah, basically. And then we, of course, get a warning. Um, he, she's basically the daughter is trying to communicate through the medium, the blind lady, who says it's not all about ectoplasm and all this and that and whatever." And she tells him that, you know, it's the daughter contacting through her um, that you're in danger. You must leave Venice. Leave. And, of course, he doesn't believe any of this. You know, in his mind, this is all hocus pocus. And, of course, there's actually a scene which I I believe actually he did almost um, have a serious accident. It's the scene in which he nearly falls to his death. Oh, with the... When he's up with the mosaic. Yeah, he's restoring the mosaic. and uh... That scene is incredible. Yeah. Um, did you realise that the actual um, the guy who was the standing to do that mm. was so freaked out that he didn't even... he Like the stuntman didn't even do the stunt. They yeah. had to leave it for Donald Sutherland. Yeah, he ended up doing it and he was attached to, I think, like a wire as a precaution in case he fooled. And Which that wire would not have worked either, apparently. No, that's true. And the, the, apparently the twirling with the wire caused holding on to the rope, um, damaged the wire. Basically, he, he would have nearly died. He would he have would almost have died. died performing his own stunt there in that scene. 
Uh, that's like another freaky part of the film. Yeah, really, and it also it? comes down to the fact of this happens not long after he's told that he's in danger. He must leave Venice. Well, um, I don't know about you, but if that was me, I would be gone. <laughs> all for the you name know? of work. All for the name of money. Yeah, okay? yeah. But he doesn't believe all this. Yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't believe all this stuff, and uh, that's ultimately, you know, how he ends up in the situation he ends up, and it really is quite tragic. Um, because obviously there is a scene in this film where obviously his wife actually goes back to England. They receive a telephone call. Their son has had a nasty fall. She goes back and it's not long afterwards that he actually sees his wife on a boat with the two ladies. Yeah, some kind of premonition. Well, uh, yeah. he doesn't know that, obviously. He doesn't realise He just that. believes, yeah, he believes that he's seen them and he cannot understand why he can't get hold of her or why she's back in the country. Yeah. And then, obviously, then um, they speak on the phone and he realises that she's been in England all along. So he's really confused. Yeah, he believes that his wife is actually... And then he, he ultimately, he feels as though they're responsible. They've done something to his wife. Um, that, you know, they've got the answer or something. Because, yeah, he sees, them, he sees them on the river and he becomes convinced that, obviously, his wife is still in Venice. But the real moment, the real what the WTF moment comes when he actually phones up England and she's put on the telephone. Yeah, it takes him totally by surprise. So it's like he was never expecting for her to be there because he's only just seen her just a little while ago in Venice. So then he contacts the police then and they try to track down the two ladies, the older ladies. Yeah. Which some he does some sort of like um sketch of yeah. her. Yeah. Policeman, which is quite funny. Don't think has to be taken too seriously. No. And um yeah, go on, sorry. Well, the police officer, actually, as well. Did you know that he couldn't actually speak a word of English? No, I didn't he know that. He knew no English. English. He had no idea what he was talking about. He, um, does, he, he does do a good job, actually. <laughs> does, he is quite... Um, I don't know what the word is. Well, it adds uh, to a sense of kind of almost creepiness, if you will. Because, yeah, yeah, he's yeah actually like reading suspicion. All of, yeah, he's reading all of these yeah. words that he doesn't actually know the meaning of. Or anything, but he couldn't actually speak any English whatsoever. It was all written for him. Um, right, I didn't do that. And uh, yeah, speaking of you know getting back quickly to the setting, you know I don't think Venice has ever looked uh, creepier in a film. Obviously, we had a Giallo released in '72, just the year before. Uh, Who saw her die, starring one-time Bond actor George Lazenby? A uh, pretty good Giallo. Um, but yeah, you know, yeah, that starred Nicola, uh, the girl from Deep Red as well. Yes, that's right, Nicoletta Almi, I believe, right? Yeah, Argento's wife. Um, and uh, yeah, with 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 Don't Look Now, um, as well, you know, that it makes great use of the setting. Um, we also get this kind of undercurrent sense of, like you said, with the murders, the movie doesn't focus on these murders. So you never really feel like what happens at the end. You never really kind of connect the dots. Or I didn't anyway. Um, the kind of this. No, you don't really is, think it's part of the plot. He believes it's Christine. Maybe there's a sense of belief that he believes that Christine 
is, you know, he's following. He ends up chasing. There's a scene, isn't there, a little earlier, where he actually walks down this alleyway. And it's, he, I, if I recall, he says something like, I know this place. I've been here. Yeah, deja vu. He's getting that sense of deja vu that he's actually been there before, despite the fact he never has. And yeah, he's foreseeing his murder, I think. It's all leading up. He's, he's getting all the clues and he's foreseeing his murder. Yeah, because it's actually the place where he's actually killed. It's around that location, isn't it? That's right, yeah. Yeah, yeah so, and, yeah, really. They, like this film, there's so much going on that like a one-time watch would, would not be very good. You know, I've watched this film dozens of times and I still find something new in it every time. Yeah. It's just a lot going on. There's a lot going on. And it's more, have you noticed as well, that there's not really a massive amount of dialogue. It's all, a lot of it's done with visuals. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of, from what I understand as well, there's uh, bre- uh, red and green appear in nearly every scene as well. There's actually a use of uh, colour in a lot of scenes, which, again, it doesn't bash you across the head with it, but apparently it's a running theme throughout the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it really is actually quite subtle. And, you know, to quickly talk about... Um, yeah, Pino Donaggio quickly, just to quickly get back to him. Um, he's not an accomplished piano player, so he was a little bit hesitant about playing the piano for this film, but he did a great job with the yeah, score I think... in this film. For it to be his first ever score, yeah, I find quite incredible because I think De Palma, uh, you know, seen this film and then went on and used him as his regular composer. Yeah, um, that's how much he was impressed by this film. Great music for Carrie, great music for Carrie, and of course, yes, also scoring Dress to Kill again, a really good score to that. Um, yeah, one of the best composers I think actually of his time. Um, you know, probably one, he's not the John Williams, he's not the, uh, maybe the James Horner or the, uh, you know, um, his name's actually escaping me. Yeah, Morricone or Hans Zimmer, probably not as well known in name, but he, yeah, Pino Donaggio actually did churn out some really good scores, uh, for films and... And the amount of scores he's churned out as well is phenomenal. Yeah, very, very prolific. I mean, John Williams is hands down, you know, the biggest name composer out there, without a doubt. No composer in the history of Hollywood has ever composed more iconic scores than John Williams. You know, everything from the likes of Star Wars, Indiana Jones, E.T., Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, you know, the list goes on. Uh, Jaws, of course. Um, But uh, yeah, so let's quickly get on to, uh, you know, the climax of this film and... The scene that obviously I remember as a kid that actually gave me nightmares is John's death. Now, John obviously chases this small figure wearing the red coat. And at this point in the movie, the tension is just impalpable. Oh, yeah. It's got the just, you know, with... something's not right. Something bad's going to happen. This is this is yeah. really creepy. This is really atmospheric. That last the climax of the film, and obviously he corners this small red figure, this figure wearing his red coat, and we hear like these, it's kind of whimpering, it sounds like a child crying, doesn't it? Yeah, I think, yeah, going back to Argento, I think Phenomena's pinched quite a lot of this film. Mm. You know, you've got the kid in the corner whimpering. Um, but yeah, the atmosphere of this fi- the, these final scenes, you've got the fog, like, 
it's just fantastic. I, I would put it possibly one of the greatest endings of all time, and I don't play that down lightly, you know. Yeah. Um, and then of course, yeah, they turn around, and uh, it's this. Uh, this isn't me being prejudiced or anything like that, um, but a creepy-looking dwarf woman. Yeah, I think you can say dwarf nowadays. Yeah, yeah, very creepy. Um, with a razor, and of course, you know, he gets his throat cut, and of course, you know, the blood starts trickling out, and of course, it's all it, it all comes down to symbolism. Um, again, that red, we see the red figure, which, you know, presumably paint whatever it is earlier on in the film, and we see that, and obviously that treacled paint, and that's, of course, the blood that's actually gushing out of John now. Um, it really yeah. is just just a horrible moment. Um, Once you see the image of the killer, you will never get that out of your head again. No, and that's what gave it me nightmares. Stick with you. It was the image of the dwarf turning around, but the whole kind of build-up that actually leads on to it, it it's just really creepy. And, of course, what we realise very soon afterwards is that when he actually saw his wife earlier in the film with the two women, he was seeing his own funeral... That's right, yeah, on the funeral badge. Yeah. Um, what What's funny about this, well, not funny, but, you know, iconic about this last scene is that the the gates are locked so she can't get to him, his wife, that she's running, you know, towards him. And she shouts out, darlings, I think she realises that, you know, he's going to meet up again with her daughter. Yeah. I think she got, she got you know, she, she's not psychic or nothing, but she's not stupid. I think she realises what's happening. Yeah. Now, interestingly, Rogue actually wanted Julie Christie to actually attend a séance prior to filming. Um, yeah, that's right. They did. They did actually attend one. Yeah, in London, I think. Um, and yeah, that you know, séances freak me out. But and certainly when they're in film, they they are, you know, they if if done well. Yeah. And I think with this film, it does that séance scene really well. Yeah. Because um, you've got the. the blind lady who just absolutely freaks you know she just freaks out doesn't she well there's a scene actually uh quickly actually getting back to her sister who you talked about earlier um there are some sense of unease in this film for example there is a moment there is a scene where they're laughing we see them laughing and holding a picture and you think to yourself it implies to me when you watch it hang on a sec are they hoaxes? Are they taking this woman? Yeah, yeah. I, funny enough, I've spoken to a few people about the film and I, they've never mentioned that or I've never heard it mentioned before, but I've always thought to myself, are they taking the piss, you know? Yeah, they're, they're, they're laughing. It's a quick scene. It's only a few seconds, but they're laughing almost uncontrollably. And it's, you sit and you're like, what are they laughing at? What are they yeah. laughing at here? And then you think to yourself, are they hoaxes? Is there something... You know, is this all a charade? And that's I wonder if what that scene is. Yeah, I wonder if that scene's put in there to make you think that because I like exactly like you. I thought, you know, I'd like to think it's they yeah. weren't hoaxes. But... And then, of course, they do kind of a disappearing act as well. And you kind of think to yourself, hang on a sec, what's what's you know what's actually going on here? Can these women actually be trusted? And the thing is also as well, and again it comes down to symbolism. There's actually just a quick little moment in the movie as well, which kind of harks back to Christine's death at the beginning of the film, um, is which he finds um, a baby doll in the water. That's right, yeah. Again, uh, much I... like his own daughter. 
exactly i think that symbolizes you know a little girl obviously yeah um yeah i picked up on that as well it's, do you realize it's, that the uh you know the red coat figure um right, the, yeah. the dwarf um that uh, i had absolutely no idea who this woman was who they actually cast in this role um but she was actually a singer um uh, yeah four foot two inches tall what's her name adelina yeah Pugliera. adelina Poero, i believe that's I think right i'm pronouncing but that correct and that's easy for you to say yeah it's quite funny actually because you know this film set in venice uh british production obviously but filmed in venice and that and uh the venetians really weren't too keen on the fact of this getting its release etc because they really felt like tourism might go downhill after this movie well the director actually said you know because someone brought up to him about the scenes in venice yeah very sparsely there's hardly any other people around no yeah but he said venice at the time was literally like that yeah well, you know it, even though it's a tourist place and all that but he said there's, there's times in venice where everyone's just indoors or looking out their windows and stuff like that he said it's it's not really you know a massive population walking around and, no. and all that, which which was brilliant for the film, really. Yeah, just the committee. The committee were worried. The committee were were somewhat worried. You know, much like I suppose were hostile Bratislava. Now I'm not actually sure if it was filmed in Bratislava, but hostile set in Bratislava. It probably doesn't do much for the Slovakian tourist trade. And I think the oh. committee in <laughs> Venice. We're a bit worried, you know, that Venice is supposed to be a place of beauty and then we're seeing dead bodies fished out of water. And <laughs> but Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the thing is with Nicholas Rogue as well, from what I understand of him, he's a director renowned for his kind of, you know, distinct editing style and his, like, recurring motifs and that. And, uh, you know, as I said, he, he came from a cinematography uh, background and editing background and... You know, this movie, again, it kind of comes back to the, the, the sex scene. The editing is, is fantastic because it's like you said, it cuts from the actual, the, the, the lovemaking to them getting ready to go out for dinner. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I haven't seen a lot of his films, but I do understand that he does use that in a few of them. Mm, yeah. I can, didn't even De Palma do that a couple of times? I'm not saying um, not possibly it, not not off the top of my head. There's nothing that I can really think of um, at the top. I of suppose my head with now. the Palmo's more split screen, wasn't it? But um... yeah, he had his own kind of distinct filming styles. Uh, Nicholas yeah. Rogue is actually considered to be one of the best British directors of his time. Again, unless you're a big film buff, he he's not probably the household name. You know, how many films have you seen that he's directed then uh nicholas rogue uh four i think i've seen walkabout well he directed the last man on earth in 76 starring the legend david bowie as well that's right yeah uh admittedly it's been a long time since i've actually seen that film and i wasn't even aware until a couple of years back that he directed the witches which yeah, I, you said film earlier, I, didn't, didn't I loved that. as a kid growing up but at the same time it terrified me the Witch is, is a, I, I wouldn't even really call it a kid's film. It's a pretty scary little movie. Yeah, that don't surprise me, you know, after watching it. Yeah, with, um, you know, uh, great practical effects, I will say. Um, I have no interest in watching the new one, to be honest, with um, Anne Hathaway. Um, I don't really think I've got much interest in actually seeing that. 
Um, but did you know that uh, Donald Sutherland actually named his son Rogue after Nicholas Rogue? No, I had no idea of that. Yeah, he's uh, his favourite collaborator. I believe Sutherland actually said something along the lines of the directors he worked with, Nicholas Rogue was his favourite. Right, because I know um, during uh, pre-production, or it might have been during the start of the film, that he did have an issue with Rogue at one stage, and he, he said to Rogue, basically, I don't think you know, this needs as much psychic angle as you're putting into it. Yeah. And Nicholas Rogue took him aside and said, look, you know, you shoot the scenes my way. Yeah. Or or you can go. And I think he respected him after that. Yeah. Definitely. And then after that, it was clear sailing. They were, they were, they got on really well. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's right. I mean, you know, th- this film, I mean, also as well, I don't know if you know, but uh, again, I didn't actually know this until quite recently, but, when this was shown, it was actually uh, the main feature of a double bill. This film was actually um, paired up with The Wicker Man. Yeah, I did read that. And um, it's funny because they both got some... In some ways, they're quite similar. They are. Really. Yeah, they both terms... feature protagonists, for one, yeah. who uh, believe they're in pursuit of a missing child. That's right, yeah. And The Wicker so... Man, again, is another British horror classic. I would love to have seen that in the cinema. Yeah. Um, one of the most iconic endings, I think, in the history of horror, you know, with The Wicker Man. So two two great British horror films, both released in the same year. Um, 2006's The Wicker Man, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um, starring my guilty pleasure, Nicolas Cage, I think the 2006 um, The Wicker Man is a terrible film, but do you know what? I love it because it's so yeah, damn bad. It's so it's comedy, unintentionally right? hilarious. It I tries to take itself seriously, that, but hey, my mate seen it in the cinema and he warned me off going. Yeah, <laughs> a remake was completely and utterly unnecessary for one, and you got someone like Nicolas Cage in with some CGBs. But if you ever want to watch Nicolas Cage dressed up as a, as, a, as an animal punching a woman out, it's the film to watch. All oh, right, that's duly noted then. <laughs> <laughs> But, um, but yeah, coming on to um, Donald Sutherland again, did you re- did you realise that he starred in um, another Jalo-esque film in 1971 called Clute? Do you know what? I know of the film. I've known of its existence for a long time, but I've never seen it. I've never actually oh, watched it. Oh, my God. You, you, you've got to see that. Yeah, I I've, do. I've got Me a too. special edition Blu-ray, and um, it's basically shot in, like, New York, and it's, like... It's it's got Jalo written all over it. It's like a serial killer, and yeah, yeah, you need to you need to watch that. Well, Donald Sutherland um, was in another uh, horror film that I'm actually a big fan of from the seventies. It was released in seventy eight, and that is Invasion of the Body Snatchers. That's one which... I've never seen. Oh, oh no, you've not seen the seventy eight remake. No, oh. yeah, I've got a couple of blind spots, and that's one of them. Yeah, I actually think, because, I mean, the original 1956 film is a sci-fi classic. You know, it goes without saying. But the 78 film, as remakes go, it's one of the very best. And I think it holds up well to the original movie. Um, Kevin McCarthy, the lead actor from the original, actually makes a cameo in the remake. And you've got Donald Sutherland, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, Leonard Nimoy, Spock himself's in there. With a bleak ending. Uh, do you know the ending to it? I think I've seen the ending. I couldn't tell you offhand. Okay, it's that it's long a gut ago. punch. It's it's a pretty gut punch ending. It's a pretty bleak ending. Um, but I love Invasion of the Body Snatchers as well. 
Um, but yeah, Daphne du Maurier as well actually wrote um, a letter to Nicholas Rogue after seeing the film, and she actually congratulated him on making such a great film from her story. Yeah, and which is quite um, usually they don't, you know, authors don't really like their adaptations, do they? Fam- you know, famously Stephen King. Uh, the Shining, and, uh, he actually yeah, that's what I was going to say. That hasn't he? He really doesn't like The Shining yeah, because Kubrick... yeah, he loves the bloody, you know. The remake, but yeah, that's another the story. The TV film, yeah, he was actually on board with that one, had a lot of creative input. He didn't like the fact that, obviously, Kubrick essentially turned it into his own thing. And uh, I, I love them both. I love the novel and I love the film for, for different reasons. But, uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, that was quite a, quite a, a praise there from uh, the very writer of the story. Um, actually the actual saying, story is... Um... It's on uh, YouTube in like someone, I don't know if it's like a radio play or someone's just reading the book, if anyone's interested. And it, mm. it, it is up on YouTube. Yeah. There are slight differences. That, I wouldn't say slight. Some of them are quite big, I suppose. But as we alluded to earlier with the two main, you know, the meningitis aspect and yeah. the girl's already dead before the yeah. story starts. I think it works really well. I actually really like the fact that Nicholas Rogue actually changed that. I like that idea, the water motif, you know, her drowning in the lake. I, you know, I don't mean to sound sadistic or anything like that, but how it parallels to Venice. Yeah, yeah. I think that's what the author, you know, real. I think she realised that they just took it up a level, you know, took it up another level. Yeah. And she was thrilled, as you, as you say, with the letter. She was absolutely thrilled the way it turned out. Yeah. You know, and who wouldn't be this? This to me is an absolute masterpiece. Yeah, I think absolute it's. A, I think it's a great movie. I think certainly it's 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 one of the very best psychological horror films out there. It has a lot more depth to it than you first realise. It's very easy to think that this is just a horror movie, um, but yeah. it isn't. You know, it, it's basically following. It's chronicling you know, the life of a married couple here that are going through the hardest thing that could possibly be to go through. The death of a child and yeah, to hang on um, to hope and you know you can really feel for her mother that, that you know her daughter is trying to communicate and hanging on to that to, to to that hope and ultimately by donald sutherland's character john ignoring all of these signs is what leads to his fate you know yeah. the, the photograph very early in the film is showing him what's to come what's going to happen but we even have that sign, don't we, Venice in Peril? Yes. And yes. apparently that was another happy accident that they come across during filming. All right. And, yeah, it's quite an iconic sign, really. Yeah. Um, but, again, kind of the uh, another little aspect, just one little scene in the film as well that's, uh, I feel, very uh, relevant to many people that have gone abroad is the scene where he's trying to find the two sisters. He's trying to find his wife. And there's a guy that comes out and he's basically talking in Italian to him and he's asking him to speak English because he doesn't understand him. There's a language barrier there. Yeah, he's actually, they think he's a peeping Tom. Yeah. Which is quite interesting. Yeah, again, kind of uh, getting back to the kind of Hitchcock kind of uh, mistaken identity kind of thing as well. Because I do believe Nicholas Rogue as well um, certainly had an influence from Hitchcock. Um, Yeah, absolutely. Hitchcock. There are some Hitchcock aesthetics um, there, quite quite kind of underlying. Um, but yeah, and that whole kind of 
that language barrier is scary. Somebody's talking to you, they're coming up to you, they're speaking to you in a foreign language and you don't understand them. But wasn't he fluent in the church when he was... Do you know what I mean? That's I've always wondered about that. Yeah, that is fluent. one thing that doesn't make complete sense to me because he is speaking in Italian in a few scenes in the film, but all of a sudden yeah. he doesn't understand what this guy is saying to him. That would be the one... You know, if I gotta like find any flaws, and I don't really want to, but that would be the one that I would say it doesn't quite add up because mm. it's. But uh, maybe he was just, you know, he was be obviously being accused of being a peeping tom. He just took by surprise and just, yeah. I don't know, just trying, basically trying to play dumb, saying, you know, yeah. I can understand you, maybe. Yeah, well, I mean, as well, you know, getting get, get onto the scene of like, you know, for example, the uh, the atmosphere of, uh, of Venice um, itself is, I think the film does a really good job of making Venice look pretty creepy. Um, oh, it's another, it's definitely another character to the film. Yeah. And, definitely. You know, character. like I said, the kind of climatic chase uh, towards the end to me is just one of the best climaxes in the history of horror movies. I would say, to me, I would say it is the best. Mm. I, I, I really find it hard, you know, to find anything that can match it, really. Yeah. You know, you've got stuff like, you know, you've got The Exorcist, where he crawls yeah. out the window. And, um, and my favourite film, obviously, is Suspiria, but I, I don't even think that's, you know, I think this ending beats them all. Yeah, I think it's a really realistic depiction as well of a married couple who are going through a troublesome time. And just to give you, again, just another little, just a quick little scene that to me has a sense of realism to it. There's a scene in the film where Donald Sutherland is sitting there, he's doing his work and he's naked. Yeah, and yeah. the Is it the maid or something comes in? Yeah, the maid comes in. And he looks around just... a bit shocked. That's realistic because the amount of... I don't know about you, right? This is probably too much information for people out there, but I'm going to say it anyway. When you're lounging around at home and stuff like that, you don't expect anyone to pop in. Sometimes you sit around in your boxes. You're just sitting yeah, around, yeah. lounging around in your box, or maybe naked. Some people do it naked, whatever. Um, <laughs> and that was just kind of realistic because that's what a lot of guys do. Yeah, I think it's, a, like you say, it's a real realistic, um, and you buy into their relationship as well. You're, you're on like a journey from the start, you know, right through to the end, and you buy everything, you know. you you And even Donald Sutherland, even though, like some would say, his character maybe sometimes, uh, I don't know, seems a bit, you know, awkward, I, I, I really like him, I, I think. Yeah. The viewer really likes the two of them. Well, he was wearing a toupee as well. Did you know he was actually wearing a wig? No, I didn't. Yeah, know that. yeah, that was actually uh, that was actually a wig. And there's actually one other scene I actually quickly want to talk about, and I almost forgot to mention actually. And uh, it's the scene in which um, it's basically leading up to John's death, or it's actually at his death. Do you remember the scene with a priest that's overseeing the restoration, waking up out of bed? Yeah, and I was gonna. Yeah, I was gonna speak to you about that. How, how do you interpret that? Because it's almost like he gets He's this... got powers himself. Yeah, it's, it's, it's like he gets this vision, but then he goes back to sleep realising, you know, I, I, what's he look, does he look at a candle or something? Yes, again, anyway, focus he, on red because it's, it's, yeah. it's uh, strikingly red. Yeah. And it's like he thinks, oh, you know, or, 
all is going to be okay anyway. Yeah. Or, because he's got the faith, maybe. I, yeah, well, I, don't I kind know, of but... interpreted that scene. My first interpretation of that scene was, hang on a sec, has he got powers himself? Is there some kind of psychic connection himself that he yeah. has? That, yeah. that was kind of my interpretation. Otherwise, what is the point of that scene? Why did yeah, they show yeah, that right. scene? Yeah, exactly, yeah. And coming on to the, the, the bishop or the priest, um, what did you think of him as, as an actor? And um, He's not an actor I'm familiar with, in fact. Um, so I don't actually know his name. That's I've not actually looked into his name. Um, he was put, Again, there were little moments. When we first get to meet him, and obviously um, Donald Sutherland's wife. I keep forgetting Julie Christie's character name. Um, I've got it written down. Uh, Is it Kate? No, um, let me grab it. Grab a piece of paper a minute. Okay, well... It is Laura. Laura, sorry, okay. Well, uh, yeah, Laura, when she actually kisses the priest's ring and that, and we get, a yeah. look, we get a look, we get this look at him, and then we get this look at kind of, uh, I believe it's the cross around his neck, and it's all them little camera shots it does, and it kind of makes you feel, makes me feel a little uneasy, if that makes I any think sense. It's, it's almost like they're trying to imply something's, something's not right here, something sinister's afoot. Maybe yeah, I, I think the bishop is actually quite another creepy, you know, component of the film. He's yeah. Well, he says to Donald Sutherland, he says to John, he says, um, "What is it? I I I, I wish I didn't believe in fate, in preordained fate, but I do." That's right, and you think you start to think, does he know something mm. that he's not saying, or yeah, especially with that scene that you just said when he sits up in bed or whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah, so maybe there's so much going on yeah. in this film. I think um, we, we're gonna, we could talk about this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're going to wrap it up, I think. Um, but I think, yeah, don't, don't look now. It's a classic psychological horror film. Um, it's, it's, good to, it's good to see that this film does have a lot of appreciation. It might have not been a huge box office success or anything like that, but it is a film that has certainly gone on to uh, attain a cult following. And... There's actually a show that I love called The League of Gentlemen. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into it and whatever, but Steve Shear, uh, Reece Shearsmith, sorry, and Steve Pemberton, two of the co-writers, creators, etc., absolutely love horror. And there is actually a nod to Don't Look Now, and I believe it's in uh, it's the third season. And there's right, a, okay. Yeah, there's actually a great nod. A little figure wearing a red coat stood next to the wall, and they turn around. <laughs> And it's uh, it's a great it's a great little nod to to that movie. Uh, it really makes me laugh. And I think there's been a few nods, you know, as well. Uh, obviously, I think I mentioned it earlier, but there would not have been phenomena by Dario Argento if it wasn't for this film. It's absolutely, it's it's definitely took took something from this film. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a classic. It's a classic. Um, it's a film that I love. It's a film that stands out from the crowd. I haven't really seen too many films like Don't Look Now. There's films out there that might deal with certain similar themes, etc. Um, but yeah, this film is executed really. It's just masterfully directed by Nicholas. Yeah, it's a, it's a complete one-off. Yeah. You, you'll never get another film like this again. I do remember, actually, just quickly, final note, I do remember reading, uh, this was a few years ago, in fact, that there were talks of a remake to this. But yes, I believe I it's been put on the scrap heap. I do believe it has actually been cancelled 
thankfully. I hope it doesn't come out. I hope it's never made, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much it for today. Thanks to everyone that listened. And uh, we'll be back again soon to haunt you and torment you. And, uh, yeah, take care. And I'd just like to actually give some shout-outs to Matt Fatchy. Uh, If you're interested in horror movies, uh, great podcast channel, uh, Fatchy's Fatch Monster Cinema. I believe I've got that correct. Also, Shane St. Laurent, uh, some great YouTube videos. Um, basically, everything within the world of geekdom, uh, that's Shane St. Laurent. And uh, Tales from the Podcast, good friend of mine, uh, Justin Bussell, um, devoted to Tales from the Crypt, one of the best horror anthology shows of all time. And Zoe Crawford, a great YouTuber, some great content, uh, everything, again, within the world of geekdom, horror, de- uh, you know, all comic book stuff, etc. And uh, also, um, uh, hello, this is The Doom Show, uh, which I'm actually going to be doing. There's actually a, two, a couple of these, at least two, three of these, I'm actually going to be doing collaborations with soon. Uh, hello, this is The Doom Show. They specialise in horror, uh, mainly giallo and slashes, I believe. And uh, also a friend of mine, Matt Nemeth, uh, entertainmenttalk.org. Uh, for film reviews, game reviews, and if you're into stop motion animation, uh, stop motion films, uh, my friend Dean Mallison, uh, Dean Mallison Films, that's M-A-L-L-I-S-O-N. So uh, that's it for today, and thanks a lot to everyone that listened, and take care.